Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining us once again this week. And thank you to our most recent Patreon supporters as well. Uh, so they are Julie, Nancy Perry, Ben Driscoll, Katie Andrew, Elaine Omani, Speck, Gabby Knight, Tracy Penrose, Connie Bins, Janie Roberts and Faraday Hartman. Thank you so much to each and every one of you. And of course, a huge thank you to all of our existing patrons too. If you would like to join these guys, there's over 350 of you over there right now. Uh, if you'd like to join them, then just head over to patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you so much, everybody, everybody who signed up and everybody who already is a patron. It's amazing. So we are going to kind of basically crack on with this week's case, to be honest with you, aren't we, Mark? Because there's not much that we can kind of say around this. It's it's a very recent case, which is unusual for seeing red. It's not something we do that often. Um, and it's it's very, very recent. But we both feel like it's a really important case to discuss. And actually, we kind of were talking, weren't we? There's There's kind of become a natural conclusion right now in the reporting of the case so we feel like right now is is quite fair to to talk about Sarah Everard and her murder yeah so um yeah like as as we said really before we we talked about beer 52 um this is a it's one of those cases today and I've thought long and hard about whether to cover this case and in fact I've been thinking about it for a number of weeks because it's raw and it speaks to so many of us particularly women and of course it's so so recent and I certainly would never have covered this case had I been recording on my own absolutely need uh, Bethan here for a female perspective on this um, and I didn't want people to think that I was covering this case just because it's topical, because it's recent. Um, and yeah, the more I thought about it, the more I thought now actually is the right time. We, as Bethan said, have a somewhat satisfying conclusion to this case now. And also so much momentum was gathered earlier this year in the wake of this murder. And I think it's really good. It's a good thing to to keep that alive. So um, so that that is really the reason why I've decided to cover it in the end. Yeah, I think that um, a lot of discussions came about um, on social media, between friends, and I think that it's also encouraged the police to look at internally at themselves as well, things like that that are just so, so important. But I also, I do agree with you as well, I think it's the sort of case where you need to have a lot of perspectives, a lot of very different perspectives and yeah, we can we can absolutely have a great discussion around this case. Mm. And it's kind of like in the wake of the George Floyd murder last year, we then covered um, the case of Emmett Till, which um, really brought that, you know, obviously when, when George Floyd was murdered, it really brought those issues to the surface, didn't it? And that was our way of really sort of addressing that and I think there's there's been a real movement this year in a similar way to to the movement last year in, in terms of um, female safety and this is um, our way of sort of addressing it I suppose or giving our take on it as well and, and keeping that story alive. So I wanted to set a little bit more context before we get into this. True crime has all of the basics of good storytelling, interesting characters, a sense of urgency and a build-up of tension that is in most cases released when the mystery is solved at the end and the offenders are brought to justice. But the true crime genre also serves another purpose. It serves as a stark reminder that the world in which we live, happily or otherwise, has a dark and dangerous underbelly. 
It reminds us that the horrific stories that we cover can happen to any of us at any given time, and it also reminds us that evil lurks all around us, often cleverly disguised with friendly faces that emit a false sense of trust. And it's within this context that we dive into the shockingly sad and painfully fresh case of Sarah Everard. It was a crime that shook Britain to its very core. Not just because of the sheer callousness and brutality of how Sarah died, but also because the individual who took her life was a figure of authority and trust, who was employed and paid by the taxpayer to protect us and Sarah. And I think that is really, um, for me personally, because I'm exposed to so much with true crime and so many cases, sadly we're kind of a, a little bit more desensitised to things and we kind of we know things like this happen and then to then know that that it was at the hands of someone who you should absolutely be able to trust. I think that's what made it more shocking for me personally, because it brought this whole other element to it that you cannot trust anybody. And that's horrific. Yeah, this this is the unique element to, to this story, because unfortunately, very sadly, Murders like this happen um, on a very regular basis all across the world and in this country. But this is unique because it was an authority figure that we have been brought up to trust. And that's what makes it so shocking. Sarah Everard was born in Surrey in 1987, but she was raised in Yorkshire. Her father, Jeremy, is a professor of electronics at York University and her mother, Susan, is a charity worker. Sarah was one of three children. She had a sister named Katie and a brother named James. From 2005 to 2008, she attended Durham University in the north of England, where she earned her bachelor's degree in geography. After her graduation, she relocated to London and secured her first marketing position as an account executive, where she worked on several well-known charity accounts, including Save the Children and the RNLI. Sarah continued advancing her marketing career until 2013, when her adventurous and outgoing spirit got the better of her and she took a seven-month-long career break in order to backpack around South America. After her gap year, Sarah enthusiastically returned to London to resume her beloved career path in marketing and she went from strength to strength. She was bright, popular, had many friends, was in a loving relationship and she really did have everything to live for. And she's one of the few people that you hear of where they actually use their gap year properly and go back to the career path that they were working towards. It's really nice to hear about because so often you hear of people just going off and just get drunk for a year and then they don't do anything afterwards. Sounds like bliss. Um, but yeah, you're, <laughs> Sounds like you, it, what would, you would, what would dream I would of. <laughs> I think it's hard though. It's probably quite hard once you've had an experience like that to go oh back. God. Yeah. Uh, to the the kind of day job so yeah kudos to her yeah on the evening of march the 3rd 2021 during the height of the second covid19 government lockdown sarah made the fateful decision to leave her house to go and visit a friend who lived just two and a half miles away near clapham common after a couple of hours of chatting and catching up sarah left her friend's house to return home again just after 9pm and she was seen by several witnesses walking alone in the clapham area that evening sarah was wearing green headphones a white beanie hat a green rain jacket navy blue trousers with a white diamond pattern and turquoise and orange trainers 
She walked along the A205 South Circular Road before taking a shortcut by cutting across the common itself, and this was the quickest and most direct route to her home on Brixton Hill. As she walked, she spoke briefly on the phone for about 15 minutes to her boyfriend Josh Louth, arranging to meet with him the following day. However, Sarah never made it home that night. At some point during the relatively short walk back to her flat, Sarah simply disappeared. The following day, when she failed to meet her boyfriend Josh as planned, he contacted the police and reported her missing. The Met Police were immediately concerned for Sarah's welfare and an urgent search was initiated, and it didn't take investigators very long to pick up her trail. With the knowledge that Sarah had left her friend's house near Clapham just before 9pm, detectives turned their attention to London's enormous CCTV network, where they quickly caught Sarah's movements at various points during her walk, leading up to the very point when she apparently vanished. The area around Clapham Common tends to be dark and sparsely lit, with many CCTV blind spots, so this naturally presented many challenges to the police. It's quite surprising, isn't it? Because especially in the UK, but especially in London, there's so much CCTV nowadays. So for there to be blind spots and and actually a number of blind spots, that's it's quite shocking in this day and age, isn't it? It is. I think. Um, I, I I mean, we'll come on to some of the the changes that Priti Patel announced following um, Sarah's murder, which are positive changes where there's millions of pounds being invested in in some of this kind of stuff. But um, I, I suppose London's like really weird because you've got these small villages essentially um, just outside central London, uh, where there's vast expanses of uh, you know parkland, etc. So it's probably really hard to cover that with CCTV but of course right in the centre in that kind of square three miles it's it's all around and it's still around on the outskirts but I, I would say less so but it's such a shame with this because the police were really disappointed to see that Sarah's CCTV trail seemed to end abruptly somewhere on Poinders Road and as bad luck would have it Sarah had vanished within one of those CCTV blind spots. Police took the decision uh, to turn to the media and the wider public for help at this point and they released several images of Sarah including recent pictures as well as CCTV images from the night that she'd vanished along with other key information about where she was last seen. These details were widely and heavily circulated in the news and via social media of course and countless members of the British public got to work with the hope of locating Sarah and bringing her home alive and well. This was a a real mass effort in London. The police also publicly appealed for anyone who was in or around Poinders Road at around 9.30 on the evening of the 3rd of March to come forward if they had any information. And actually several members of the public responded to this appeal and it was through these responses that the police were able to find a strong yet disturbing lead. One eyewitness came forward and reported seeing a woman matching Sarah's description being placed into handcuffs by a man next to an unmarked car. This witness statement not only gave the police grave concern for Sarah's well-being, but it also instilled in them a sense of dread over what kind of man Sarah had encountered and just how close to the investigation this man may be lurking because this is a guy who has handcuffed her. 
The police didn't have to wait long for their answers. Just one day later, a London bus company contacted the police and handed over the dashcam footage from all of their buses that were operating in the area that night. After a brief analysis, the police caught images of Sarah on the pavement, apparently talking to a man in plain clothes who was stood beside a Vauxhall car. The number plate, which was clearly visible in the footage, revealed that this Vauxhall was a hire car. This allowed investigators to trace the car quickly and easily back to the hire company, who in turn readily provided police with the name of the man who had leased the vehicle. This is how easy it was. How mad is this? This is exactly it. Yeah, exactly what I was going to say is he, he really didn't try and cover much tracks at all. Absolutely crazy to to have something in, in plain view of any CCTV or any AMPR cameras or anything going on or like this, you know, a bus going past. It's yeah. just absolutely mad. And, you know, you've hired that car in your own name and stuff. Yeah. It's just madness. I mean, he's got he's gone to the trouble of hiring a car, which is interesting because there's some sort of foresight there, uh, which you can see. But I, I've thought about this, and I, I all I can think is that he just didn't care. What was important to him was finding a woman to rape and murder, and that's all that mattered. And it didn't really matter about the consequences of that because he needed to find a woman to rape and murder, and that that was all he could see. That's all he could think about. Yeah. Um. So. Really so by it. Yeah, totally, yeah. So the police, who believed they now had their prime suspect in Sarah's disappearance, began quietly investigating the man who had hired this car uh, and had been seen talking to Sarah, and it was then that their worst fears were realised. The man they were looking at in the CCTV was Wayne Cousins, one of their own, an officer with the Metropolitan Police Force. On the surface of the investigation, every shred of evidence they had pointed directly at Cousins. He lived more than 80 miles away from London in Deal, a coastal town in Kent, a two-hour drive away from Clapham Common, where Sarah vanished. And although he had been working earlier that day in London, he was no longer on duty at the time Sarah disappeared, so he had no reason whatsoever to still be there in the area. The revelation that he'd been seen putting Sarah in handcuffs indicated that he'd travelled to London in a hired car with the sinister intention of abducting a female, but moreover that he'd committed the ultimate betrayal for an officer of the law. He'd used and abused his position of authority, likely to bring unimaginable harm to an innocent civilian whom he was being paid by the taxpayer to protect. This was no exaggeration, as many police officers from around the UK later contemplated. From a young age, we are told that the police are the good guys, our protectors, the ones who go above and beyond to keep us safe. This has been the case for generations. However, when Wayne Cousins committed that horrific offence, he permanently tarnished everything the police stood for and laid waste to a long-standing trust-based relationship between the police and the public. This, for me... Is, is really one of those things. You bring your children up saying to them, if you need help, you go to the police. You bring your children up, and we were brought up in, you know, being told police are people you trust, police you people you go to. You do, you know, you do what you're told. If some, if you're flashed to pull over at the side yeah. of the road by a police car, you pull over. You know, if a police officer asks you questions, you're supposed to be answering questions. You're really brought up in this mindset that these are people that you trust and that you should be able to go to if you need help. 
And then that's what we then found. We we were then hearing all these news stories and reading these news articles that actually he he'd abused his trust and his position of power is horrific. Yeah, and then then it of course makes you think what would I do now if I was driving down a country lane, it's dark, a car flashes me, pulls me over, maybe it's got um, a blue light, maybe it's a, a marked police car and a genuine police officer, but we don't know what their intentions could be. So, um, so yeah, really, really sparked a lot of debate and, and still is, of course. And I don't know whether you're going to be talking about this a bit later on or if it's something, but something that made me really, really angry was the North Yorkshire commissioner, the police commissioner from North Yorkshire, who started then saying, well, women should know whether or not they can be arrested. She shouldn't have submitted to mm. being arrested. If he... And that, I mean, not just me, he was slammed in the media for the comments that he made. But, okay, so I personally if I was being flashed to pull over and I was in the car on my own, I personally would drive to a well-lit place and I personally would aim to go to a police station or phone 999 and say, is this correct? Should I be pulling over? That's just me from a driving perspective. But actually, yeah, if I was walking and someone pulled over, I don't know what I would do in that situation. And I'm in a position where we talk about true crime a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why should informed, you have to yeah. know the ins and yeah why should you have to know the ins and outs and you should be able to just trust that that police officer is telling you something that is truthful mm. and is allowed and of course the vast majority of serving police officers are trustworthy they're doing the right thing and of course we do still respect their authority but this really did spark that discussion around um you know, how, how much do we have to do to comply? Um, what are our rights? So I think it was a really valid discussion that we had. But um, but there will be serving police officers right now that are um, committing illegal activities, whatever it might be, that can't be trusted. So, um, so yeah, I will come on to some of that at the end, actually, um, kind of alluding to what you've talked about there. Good, because I've got a lot of opinions, Mark. So um, Sarah was described by all who knew her as intelligent, switched on and certainly no pushover. Therefore, it's logical to assume that cousins would have had to use some practiced or maybe even pre-rehearsed deception in order to make her comply. And the most likely method would be an arrest for breaching COVID lockdown rules or some other totally made up breach of the law. Because I, I think this is a really kind of grey area, but in, it technically at the time, uh, you could say Sarah was breaking the law um, because she'd gone to visit a friend. But I think it's a really grey area because if you'd said that friend was my kind of support network and a person I, I kind of rely on for support, then it would have been OK. So um, so I, I don't see anything wrong with what she did at all. I think the problem that a lot of people faced with the COVID lockdown rules was some were suggestions, some were laws, some had get arounds like you said if you were in a social bubble or if you had a childcare bubble or a work related item you know what is essential to one is not essential to another there are a lot of a lot of gray areas that people just did not understand a lot of you know social media was filled with memes of you know jokes about how the rules were one way then the other then the other then back mm. again and nobody really knew where you stood so actually yes a police officer pulling you over and saying you're not allowed to be doing that even if you genuinely think to yourself hang on i'm in a childcare bubble blah 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 mm. you'd still think to yourself well never mind when i get to the station i'll explain myself away and i'm not in trouble or 
you know, you'd be you'd be maybe be worried. You'd be thinking, oh, God, have I misunderstood the regulations or something? There's there's just so much around it that all it would take is for him to say, well, you shouldn't be out because of COVID. And really, that's all he probably needed to say. Mm. And it would make her worried. There, there was so much in, in the news at the time about people being arrested for all sorts of stupid things. Like there were those two women that had met up outside with a coffee uh, to walk across some hills or whatever. And they were arrested for that uh, because... Yeah, because they sat down, didn't they? And it counted as a picnic. I, I don't even know if they... It was something ridiculous like that. It or, was stupid, yeah. you know, the police had said, well, this isn't technically exercise. You're using this as an excuse to kind of do something sociable. So, it, yeah. you know, there were all these grey areas and a lot of it was like utter bollocks. And of course, we all have common sense on most of us. And we wanted to do our best to stop the spread of this awful disease, this virus. But ultimately, yeah, there was so much confusion. And I remember the, all of those memes as well about and all, all the kind of piss taking about Boris Johnson in terms of him trying to explain what the rules were and nobody fucking understanding whatsoever. So... Um, so yeah, it was a, a really messy time, but we were heavily into a lockdown at that point, but it, it was very complex. Upon further investigation into Wayne Cousins' work as an officer, detectives discovered that on the 5th of March, the day after Sarah's disappearance, he had told his superior officers that he was suffering from work stress and no longer wanted to carry a gun. This really bothers me because if someone, if you're a serving uh, officer with the Met Police and you go to a superior and say, I feel stressed and it's work stress, I don't want to carry a gun anymore, that would ring massive alarm bells to me and I'd be kind of thinking... Okay, so why don't you want to carry a gun anymore? Can you not trust yourself? What else can't you be trusted with? And we'll support you with that work stress, but you know, there's maybe another avenue that we need to explore here. But I don't think anything was done at that time. I think I'd like to know more about that discussion, however, because did he specifically go to superior officers and say, I do not want to carry a gun? Or was it, I'm dealing with work stress, I need a break? And then they ask the question and he answers, yeah, fair enough, I shouldn't be carrying a gun. Like, it, mm. I would love to know a little bit more about where his mind was with that because was it him going to them and saying, I can't be trusted with a gun? Yeah. Or was it in the course of the conversation he admitted to not being trustworthy? I don't know, like, that's something I find interesting. It, it could be that it was misreported. So it could be that he'd gone to his superiors and said, I'm suffering from work stress and their protocol is immediately to remove firearm license for that officer, which would make sense. So it could mm -hmm. be that that was the case. But there, I think there are two inquiries into all of this, so it will come to light. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay, so um, a few days later, so on the 8th of March, Wayne Cousins went off sick. And before we take a moment to summarise the scene that was being pieced together by the police at this point, let's just take a moment to hear from the second and final sponsor of today's show. As I said, yeah, yeah let's take a moment now to summarise the scene that was being pieced together by the police at this point. And I think really quickly, sorry, that I just cannot imagine being on that detective team, piecing this together and seeing this is one of your colleagues. Like, I know that probably goes without saying, but I just wanted to mention that I cannot imagine how hard this must have been for those officers. And, and although there's thousands of serving officers with the Met Police in London, I kind of I imagine it's sort of like a, a small world. So there would have been officers investigating this that knew Wayne Cousins or knew of him or knew people that knew him and of his reputation. So it would have felt like a very intimate investigation in, into one of their own, certainly. 
So where have we got to then? What do we know? So at around 9.35pm, Sarah walked along Poinders Court, an unmarked car pulled over and a lone figure emerged from the vehicle. The man stopped Sarah and showed her his credentials, which identified him as a police officer. He then showed her a warrant card and then placed her in handcuffs before falsely arresting her under the pretense of breaching COVID guidelines. This interaction was twice captured by bus CCTV, the first instance at 9.35 that showed them beside the car and then three minutes later at 9.38 the CCTV clearly showed the Vauxhall's number plate and around this time Wayne Cousins in Sarah's eyes, a trusted police officer, loaded her into his hire car and drove away with her. Sarah was never seen alive again after this point. Picking up his trail on Poinders Court after he departed the scene with Sarah, the police continued to track Cousins' movements using various CCTV and ANPR networks, and they discovered that after he'd driven off with Sarah, he had left the city and headed towards Kent. By midnight, he had covered approximately 85 miles and arrived in Dover. It's hard to even imagine the unspeakable fear that Sarah must have been feeling at this point. She was an intelligent woman and she would have known relatively early on in that journey that something was going horribly wrong. Out of the countless dozens of police stations this officer could have taken her to, why on earth was he driving her to Dover? Were they having any sort of communication within the car? Like, was she she asking him questions and did he answer anything? Was he still trying to keep up a pretense or... Oh, you know, yeah, I just can't imagine what she was thinking and what she was begging and asking, you know, begging for answers or something. I I feel from everything I've read, I I feel that he was keeping the pretense up. She, the further they travelled, the more suspicious she would have become. Um, But but yeah, that that was the premise of getting her into the car and... Uh, he, who knows? He might have said to her, "We need to take you to a specific police station. It's a, uh, you know, hour and a half, two hours away, um, where we're dealing with all the COVID regulation breaches." Who knows? He could have come up with any old shit. But yeah, you're right. What what else was said? And and did she call him out on it? And did she know? And um, did things turn a bit bit nasty during the journey? So, as we said, yeah, at some point during that two-hour trip, Sarah, now sitting helplessly in handcuffs in the back of a strange car, would have probably figured out that she'd been duped, that the man driving the car was not who he said he was, and that she was unlikely to survive the horrors that awaited her. But I, I do think it would have taken some time. Not long after arriving in Dover, Cousins transferred Sarah into his personal car, a Seat, and continued driving. The CCTV trail came to an end very shortly after that. However, it was later discovered that his mobile phone connected to cell sites in Sibbertswold, a rural village not far from Dover, between the hours of midnight and 1am. This indicated that he had pulled over somewhere and had remained in the area for a short time. It's now believed that this is when he raped and killed Sarah. Cousins was not seen again on CCTV until around 2.30am when he was picked up by security cameras at a Dover petrol station buying drinks. He then returned his hire car promptly and on time at 8.30 later that same morning. And the Met now had more than enough circumstantial evidence to make an arrest and so they contacted Kent Police and brought them up to speed on where they were and what they knew. On the 9th of March 2021, around 5.45pm, 
Kent police arrived outside Cousins' home in Deal. They monitored the premises for almost two hours before the decision was made to move in and arrest him on suspicion of kidnap at this point. And I find that amazing because it was less than a week. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah, it's so quick. Incredible police work. And this is a police officer. You'd think he would really know how to evade uh, his own colleagues when he's committing a crime. So again, it just, for me, it casts so much doubt on um, whether he ever really wanted or expected to get away with this. It, it wasn't about getting away with it so he could necessarily repeat, offend. It was just about fulfilling this fantasy. That's all he could think about, hang the consequences. Mm. Yeah. A woman in her 30s was also arrested at the address on suspicion of assisting an offender. I don't think we can tell you who she is, but you can guess that. And uh, she was seen cleared of any involvement and subsequently released without charge. So no charges were brought. She'd done nothing wrong. What I did actually quite appreciate on social media when the discussions were happening around this was at the time people knew who this person was and it was reported. A lot of people very fairly said... It's probably very, very standard that if you're at the same address as this person, there will be the suspicion that you assisted or were aware or did something or blah, mm. blah, blah, blah. Let's, let, let's find out and see what happens. So to then discover that actually she's been cleared of any involvement, released without any charge, and now we're going to keep all of that quiet. I think that's really, really fair of yeah. society, if you know what I mean, because it would have been very easy to, to completely vilify that person. As we've seen a number of times in the media, to then be proven wrong and you've ruined that person's life. Actually, people are quite fair to this mm. other person in the re- in the um, house at the time. That's very balanced of you, Bethan. Um, I completely agree, though. Um, not not often I give you a compliment. So, uh, yeah, I think also the reason they would have arrested this person is because it gives them more powers. They're going to need to interview her anyway, um, but it would give them more time to, to interview her. And I suppose it gives her more rights as well. She has the right to then be accompanied by a solicitor where she may not have had that right. So... Um, so I think it, it was the right thing to do, obviously. But yeah, she she um, she'd done absolutely nothing wrong. She she's a victim in this too, albeit a very different type of victim. Around forty minutes before he was arrested, cousins clearly sensing something was wrong or that he was going to get caught, tried to wipe the data from his mobile phone. The police placed their colleague in handcuffs and conducted an initial interview with him right there in his living room. The interview was recorded and later released for public consumption and during the interview Cousins at first claimed total ignorance. When he was shown a picture of Sarah he pretended not to recognise her and stressed that he'd never met her personally. The interviewing officer confronted Cousins with claims that the police possessed compelling evidence that proved beyond reasonable doubt that he was involved in Sarah's disappearance. And at this point Cousins' already shaky resolve began to crumble completely. Sensing the net was closing in on him, he claimed he had been using the services of a sex worker in Folkestone and he said that he'd run up large debts with the people who had trafficked this sex worker into the country. It's preposterous. According to him, the sex worker belonged to a gang of Eastern Europeans who had threatened to bring harm to cousins and his family unless he delivered them another girl as compensation for their lost earnings. And he even gave officers a description of the men and showed them on a map where he had met them and handed Sarah over to them i mean just again we see it so often don't we where the perpetrator in a crime just comes up with just the worst stupid excuse or motive or reason or 
a bit of kind of misdirection. It's just like, use a fucking brain. I think as well, if it hadn't been for the fact that the crux of this story is a woman being raped and murdered, it is laughable. It is absolutely ridiculous. Oh yeah, they, you know, they threatened that you have to get another girl. Even at that point, if this was true, you work for Met Police, go and arrest the gang. Yeah. Like, what the hell? It's, it, it is laughable in that he couldn't even think of a no. decent enough excuse. It's not laughable because he killed and raped a woman, but what an absolute... It's just like, a, it's a shower of shit, isn't it? It's just, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the officers would have seen right through it, but they did follow up extensively on this line of inquiry, yeah, a complete good. waste of time, but... Um, yeah, basically nothing. You have to. Yeah, of course you do. But, you know, nothing came of it. And the finger very much pointed at Cousins. So that that was really obvious to them. And, um, yeah, investigators were keen to find out as much about him as possible, even though he was a serving officer. Wayne Cousins was born in Dover in 1972. And after leaving school, he worked in the family business as a mechanic. He was said to be a member of the Army Reserve, serving in the 3rd Battalion, the Princess of Wales Royal Regiment, for two years from 2002. He'd joined the police in 2005 and was successfully recruited into the Met in 2018, after seven years of service with the Civil Nuclear Constabulary, so kind of like pretend police. In February 2020, he joined the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command as a firearms officer. How worrying. The PD PC protects VIPs and offers armed security to sites such as the Palace of Westminster and Downing Street. And it was later revealed that Cousins had not undergone enhanced vetting as part of his recruitment into the PD PC. And that was a standard requirement for any serving police officer. And nor had he gone through the mandatory two-year probation period with the Met before joining that specialist branch of the police and this controversial revelation would later become the catalyst for widespread anger and burning criticism towards the metropolitan police further revelations about wayne cousins's disturbing behavior only raise the police's fears for sarah's welfare because of course at this point they don't have a body they are searching for a missing uh, a missing woman and they are uh, they've arrested wayne cousins for kidnap mm-hmm In 2015, whilst working for Kent Police, Cousins had been involved in an alleged incident of indecent exposure, over which the force took no further action. It's believed that Kent Police had received a report that Cousins had been seen by other road users driving a car in Dover whilst naked from the waist down. It is alleged that there may have been enough information recorded in the Kent Police system to have identified the man as Cousins, who of course was a serving police officer at the time, yet no action was taken. As of right now, as this episode is being recorded, the Independent Police Complaints Commission is still investigating this. Similarly, and even more alarmingly, on on this occasion, two further allegations of indecent exposure towards women concerning the former police officer are also being looked into by the IPCC, one of which involves an allegation that Cousins had indecently exposed himself at a McDonald's restaurant in Kent. Cousins had been questioned extensively about these allegations just days before he was accused of Sarah's murder. However, for unknown reasons, which are now being thoroughly investigated, because that's okay then, he was not suspended from his policing duties and no decisive action had been taken. It's just mental because I know for a fact that in my job, I'd be suspended from duty and investigated and my job has nothing to do with protecting the public. No, 
No, just from a reputationary, reputational uh, yeah. perspective, you'd be suspended, wouldn't you say? So, yeah, and, and Cousins' troubling behaviour at work was only the tip of a much bigger iceberg. Behind closed doors, his personal life was taking a similarly dark path. Despite being married with two young children, Cousins frequently paid sex workers for sex, and he also set up fake accounts on an online dating site. He was also almost £30,000 in debt and was attracted to violent pornography. Despite all of this, Cousins remained a busy and active member of the Met Police Force, whose duties within the branch saw him moving around the capital very frequently, but he was primarily assigned as an armed guard, jointly responsible for the security of various embassies in and around central London. That was a lot of what he did. On the 4th of March, the day that Sarah Everard would go missing, it is claimed that Cousins worked a six-hour relief shift at the American Embassy in Nine Elms, which is about three miles from where Sarah went missing. He's said to have finished his shift at around 8pm on the night of the abduction, before then setting off in his hire car to prowl the streets of London in search of a victim. The public search for Sarah and their hopes of a happy outcome reached a heartbreaking conclusion at around 4.20pm on the 10th of March this year when police searching Hodes Wood discovered human remains in a large builder's bag. The field where Sarah was discovered was located less than 100 yards from another plot of land which just so happened to be owned by none other than Wayne Cousins. Two days later, on the 12th of March, Sarah's body was positively identified through dental records and it later transpired that Cousins had burned her body in an old refrigerator and then used two builder's bags to move her remains to that wood where he then dumped her. I remember being sort of like, just reading about it and just thinking, everything is just so stupid and not thought out and to be that close to your own land, it's just another thing where you just think, you're an absolute idiot what a horrific but like, how were you a serving police officer yeah yeah how did he get into the force and how was this guy trusted with protecting really important buildings in our capital and really important mm-hmm. people as well with a gun it's it's really disturbing yeah. so um i'll come on to talk a little bit about the inquiries that are ongoing now but it's really pleasing at least to know that uh, this is being looked into so that lessons can be learned but it, of course it's too late um for for this A post-mortem concluded that Sarah had died from compression to the neck and it's widely believed that Cousins' police belt was the murder weapon and Sarah was just 33 years old when she died. On the same day that Sarah's remains were discovered, Cousins was re-arrested on suspicion of murder because of course at this point he'd only been arrested uh, on suspicion of kidnap. He was charged with kidnapping and murder now and on the 13th of March he appeared at Westminster Magistrates Court where the charges were read out. He was then denied bail and remanded in custody before appearing at the Old Bailey via video link from Belmarsh Prison a few days later. On the 8th of June, while still in custody, Wayne Cousins pleaded guilty to all charges laid out against him and admitted full responsibility for Sarah's death. At a subsequent hearing on the 9th of July, Wayne Cousins again pleaded guilty to murder. On video link from Belmarsh Prison, he kept his head down and was observed to be shaking slightly. It was confirmed that prior to the abduction, Cousins and Sarah were complete strangers to one another. He was out that night with premeditated plans to kill a woman and Sarah just happened to be his unfortunate victim. Her only mistake was being caught at the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not a mistake that's attributable to her. 
it's just a sick twist of fate that it was her. Wayne Cousins' sentencing hearing began at the Old Bailey on the 29th of March following a presentation of his medical and psychiatric reports. Sarah's sister Katie, her mother Susan and her father Jeremy all read out victim impact statements. Both Katie and Jeremy's statements directly addressed Cousins himself and they demanded that he look at them as they spoke. But of course he didn't. I mean, fair play to them for even being able to do that. So brave. And it says a lot about him that he wouldn't. Yeah, so cowardice he couldn't bring himself to look them in the eye. So nevertheless, Jeremy told him, I can never forgive you for what you've done, for taking Sarah away from us. She was handcuffed and unable to defend herself. You burnt our daughter's body. You further tortured us so that we could not see her again. You murdered our daughter and forever broke the heart of her mother, father, brother, sister, family and friends. Towards the end of the proceedings, Cousins' defence barrister requested that the judge consider imposing a determinate sentence, which of course would allow Cousins to apply for parole at some point in the future. However, the following day, Wayne Cousins was ordered to spend the remainder of his natural life behind bars when he was given a whole life tariff. That's I'm and I remember reading this and just the kind of relief that I felt because yeah. it like you're probably going to discuss it's it is incredibly rare but it just felt like the only option that he should face and I remember kind of just feeling that sort of like oh thank God that they actually have done this yeah because it doesn't always follow common sense isn't always exercised by these judges but it was on this occasion Uh, so yeah I was going to go on to just kind of talk about it briefly so yeah in UK law whole life orders are exceptionally rare and they're usually reserved for the most severe and dangerous offenders the judge who presided over the sentencing justified the severity of the punishment by saying that Cousins' abuse of his position as a police officer to detain and later murder Sarah was the vital factor which in my view, this is a quote from him, makes the seriousness of this case exceptionally high. And I think that's what the public agreed in so many ways especially didn't they? yeah that, that that's what this case is all about really of course it's it's all about mm-hmm. sarah and, and this awful thing that happened to her but it, it's really about that wider discussion that this was a serving police officer and the ramifications that his actions have had on on society particularly to to women After the sentencing each of sarah's family members gave heartfelt statements to the media outside the old bailey However, it was Sarah's mother, Sue Everard's speech that cut the deepest and most accurately reinforced the deeply sickening reality of what Wayne Cousins had done just to satisfy his twisted urges. And this is a really long statement that I wanted to read in full because it's not widely available everywhere. And so often these statements are just kind of um, cut and shut almost and you just kind of get part of it but this is just such a she just has such a way with words and I think it's really important to to read it in full so she said Sarah is gone and I am broken hearted she was my precious little girl our youngest child the feeling of loss is so great it's visceral and with the sorrow come waves of panic at not being able to see her again I can never talk to her never hold her again and never more be part of her life We've kept her dressing gown, it still smells of her, and I hug that instead of her. Sarah died in horrendous circumstances, I am tormented at the thought of what she endured. I play it out in my mind, I go through the terrible sequence of events. I wonder when she realised she was in mortal danger. I wonder what her murderer said to her. When he strangled her, for how long was she conscious, knowing she would die? It is torture to think of it. 
Sarah was handcuffed, unable to defend herself, and there was no one to rescue her. She spent her last hours on this earth with the very worst of humanity. She lost her life because Wayne Cousins wanted to satisfy his perverted desires. It is a ridiculous reason, it is nonsensical. How could he value a human life so cheaply? I cannot comprehend it, I am incandescent with rage at the thought of it. He treated my daughter as if she was nothing and disposed of her as if she was rubbish. If Sarah had died because of an illness, she would have been cared for. We could have looked after her and been with her. If she had died because of an accident, people would have tried to help. There would have been kindness. But there is no comfort to be had. There is no consoling thought in the way Sarah died. In her last hours, she was faced with brutality and terror, alone with someone intent on doing her harm. The thought of it is unbearable. I'm haunted by the horror of it. When Sarah went missing, we suffered days of agony, not knowing where she was or what had happened to her. Then, when Sarah's burnt remains were found, we spent two terrible days waiting for Tess to show how she'd died, fearing she'd been set alight before she was dead. The thought was appalling. Burning her body was the final insult. It meant we could never again see her sweet face and never say goodbye. Our lives will never be the same. We should be a family of five, but now we are four. I yearn for her. I remember all the lovely things about her. She was caring, she was funny, she was clever, but she was good at practical things too. She was a beautiful dancer, she was a wonderful daughter. She was always there to listen, to advise or simply to share with the minutiae of the day. And she was also a strongly principled young woman who knew right from wrong and who lived by those values. She was a good person, she had purpose to her life. My outlook on life has changed since Sarah died. I'm more cautious. I worry more about our other children. I crave the familiarity and security of home. The wider world has lost its appeal. It is too painful to contemplate a future without Sarah, so I just live in the here and now. I think of Sarah all the time, but the mornings and evenings are particularly painful. In the morning, I wake up to the awful reality that Sarah is gone. In the evenings, at the same time she was abducted, I let out a silent scream. Don't get in the car, Sarah. Don't believe him. Run. I'm repulsed by the thought of Wayne Cousins and what he did to Sarah. I'm outraged that he masqueraded as a policeman in order to get what he wanted. Sarah wanted to get married and have children. Now all that has gone. He took her life and stole her future, and we will never have the joy of sharing that future with her. Each day dawns and I think Sarah should be here, leading her life and embracing new experiences. She had so many years ahead of her. I don't know how anyone could be so cruel as to take my daughter's life. What I do know is that Sarah will never be forgotten and is remembered with boundless love. I cling on to memories of Sarah. I hold them tight to keep them safe. The other night I dreamt that Sarah appeared at home. In my dream, I held her and could feel her physically. Jeremy was there. We were comforting her, saying, It's all right, Sarah. It's all right. I would give anything to hold her once more. I hope I dream that dream again. Isn't that just... It's just heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, it's so... She Doesn't she just write it so eloquently? It just conveys all of her emotions so well. Beautifully and so haunting. And that idea that... To, to long to be able to have a dream because that's all you could possibly have. Like, that's yeah. just, oh, it's so sad. Yeah. 
Cressida Dick, Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, also gave a statement outside the court in which he strongly condemned Wayne Cousins' actions, saying that she felt sickened, angered and devastated by his crimes, adding, They are dreadful and everyone in policing feels betrayed. Sarah was a fantastic, talented young woman with a whole life ahead of her and that has been snatched away. However, the public have been far less empathetic towards Ms Dick and she has been the subject of scorching criticism and calls for immediate resignation over her apparent failure to properly vet her officers. For the time being though, Ms Dick has not resigned and remains the Commissioner of the Met. Further outpourings of public anger and criticism towards the police followed in the wake of Sarah's death. On the 30th of September, after Cousins' sentencing, a spokesperson for the Met advised the public to consider shouting out to a passerby, running into a house, knocking on a door, waving a bus down, or if you're in the position to do so, calling 999, should they feel threatened or uncomfortable when being stopped by a single police officer. It's it's such a joke because those are the things you should do if you are feeling threatened by a person yeah. who is attacked, you know, those are things that you would think to do if you felt threatened by someone following you down the street or who's tried to, you know, chase you or attack you or rob you or anything like that. Not when you think you're being put under arrest. I because know. I feel like most people would go, if I do that, I'm going to get done for evading arrest or, you know, trying to, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you do that? If you felt like you were being under arrest, put under arrest, you would do what you're told. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's a, a joke, isn't it? it? It is a joke. And of course, these guidelines were met with even more criticism, with, yeah, some commentators arguing that this would not have prevented Sarah's murder, as Wayne Cousins was a real and active police officer with the authority and power to make arrests. And it was also remarked upon that under normal day-to-day circumstances, as you've said, Beth, and any act of resisting arrest, is a crime in itself which leaves any potential victim in a lose-lose situation that was the word i was trying to think of resisting arrest yeah Yeah. it's it's just madness like fair enough that works if you like you said if he was a fake police officer or average joe blogs off the street yes but if a police officer says that they're putting you under arrest and you have to do what you're told and you run away from them waving down a bus you might get hit by a bus you might yeah they might they might then, I don't know, you might get shot. You just don't know what's going to happen to you if you start running away from a police officer because you don't feel safe that you're being arrested. Yet that's someone from the Met who is potentially giving that advice to some people. Mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. Really out of touch as well, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. In response to the murder, the government announced that it would spend an additional £25 million on street lighting and CCTV cameras in various parts of the country, which of course is... Uh, you know, a really good thing to come out of this. But that money should have been, of course, spent before, shouldn't it? And it's frustrating. I know we had um, just literally, in my, specifically outside my street, there's a main sort of road. It's not a, a properly main road, but it's a, a main kind of road that you drive along a lot. And our streetlights all went out. And trying to get those fixed by the council took weeks. And I remember at the time saying I, I would potentially be a lone female walking along that route that, Yes, it's a big main road, but if it's the middle of the night or the early evening, for example, it's going to be pitch black and get the lights fixed. And it's yeah, it still took a couple of weeks and who knows what could have happened in those Mm. two weeks. Thank God nothing did. But it's not like, oh, we'll put all this money in and then everything's going to be perfect. It will still take 
ages to get anything implemented yeah i think i think there's too much of well let's just kind of hope nothing bad happens and and yeah. wait it out and it's like oh like with your scenario oh, nothing bad happened so it's okay but something bad could have happened and does happen all the time so. exactly um, now, as Wayne Cousins begins to spend the rest of his natural life in prison, key questions remain as to how the police failed to spot the numerous stark warning signs that one of their own officers could pose such a significant danger to women. He was apparently known to some colleagues as the Rapist, which was a nickname that alluded to his creepy nature and weird behaviour at work. And that's a really, to me as well, like that... you. Surely if someone's just a bit weird and creepy, the nickname would be Creepy Man or The mm. Creep or The Freak or something like that. The Rapist sh- suggests that at some point someone has felt that he is a danger towards women. Yeah, yeah. Like, that is really serious. How is that not even just been addressed with, like, one of those senior officers going, Excuse- why does everyone call him that? Mm. What's the reasons? Do we need to look at him a little bit more? Do you think maybe when we get told that he's driving around naked in his car and he's known as the rapist and he flashed someone in McDonald's, do you not think you should put some note? Oh, sorry, I'm going to get angry because it makes you so angry, doesn't it? Of course it does, yeah. So in October, uh, Home Secretary Priti Patel announced that an inquiry will soon be launched into several systematic failures that allowed Wayne Cousins to continue to be a police officer despite well-documented concerns about his conduct and character. And the Home Office said the inquiry would be in two parts, with the first part examining his behaviour and establishing a definitive account of his conduct in the lead-up to his conviction for Sarah's murder. And the second part would address specific issues such as the kind of more thing like processes within the police. So vetting procedures, standards, discipline and workplace behaviour. So uh, hopefully it will be a full inquiry and that inquiry is ongoing right now. Um, and as of the 27th of October, so that's like uh, this past week, Wayne Cousins uh, has announced that he plans to appeal his sentence which is just so incredibly disrespectful to Sarah's legacy. Yeah. Um, He's not going to get anywhere, but he gets himself some more publicity. Yeah. He gets his day in court again and potentially, may hopefully not. But yeah, it's just like you said, I think that the di- word disrespectful is is such the right word. It's just trying to rub salt in a wound. It's just horrific. I think um, there is a real legacy from all of this, isn't there? Because, and you'll you'll have a better perspective on this, but there's a real legacy around safety, particularly women's safety when out on the streets. And from my perspective as a man, all of this, uh, this discussion around all of this really got me thinking about uh, the things that I can do. And we had some really good uh, debates, not debates, but discussions on our Facebook page around these this time um, about what men can do to make women feel safer. So, you know, if you're out walking down a street and it's dark and there's a woman in front of you you know don't kind of walk directly behind her cross the road uh make her kind of make yourself a bit more visible and maybe walk a bit quickly so you can kind of go past her because you're going to come across as a threat so there's things we can do but i mean what what about for you from your perspective what what's it made you think it's really brought home to me that whilst human nature is human nature and you know things will still happen for me it's almost kind of gone well no matter what you do there's there's people who should be protecting you who 
may still take advantage and that's that's really quite terrifying and I feel like that's something that's made a lot of people stop and think but it's also in a good way meant that I can say to people you know here's some hints and tips about keeping yourself safe without sounding like an absolute loon who's read too much true crime or has been immersed in the true crime industry too much because they've now been able to see in a very real mainstream manner actually yeah here are some really good tips to look after yourself I think a lot of the stuff that's come out people have been quite defensive and this whole well not all men thing has happened and it it does break my heart to think that for example my husband or my dad could at any point feel that they've made someone feel under threat that's really upsetting and it would it would hurt them to know that but like you said you know you'd have to feel like I don't want to make that woman feel this way I think that's really upsetting as well I think that there has to be a legacy come of this and come out of this that at least there's more discussions going on and, and women do talk more and, and share. I mean, it sounds awful to say, but survival tips really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think yeah, you're right about the uh, sort of defensive reaction because I could feel it in myself of we're not all like this guy. We're, we're, there's majority of men are good people. But I suppose it was just about recognising that despite that, you could still make somebody feel fearful for their safety even though you're not doing anything wrong and it's just about having a bit of an awareness around that so I'm not here to preach or lecture but I just think it's great to to have discussions around it and we've all done that haven't we whether that's on our Facebook group or we've discussed it privately um, and you discuss it with family and friends so uh, yeah it's um, it's not for me to lecture it's just to prompt the discussion around it really. Yeah, and I think because, for example, with your situation, you you know, I know you, I know you really well. I know that you are not a threat to anybody. Um, however, you're a really tall person. You're an, an imposing figure to a small woman, for example. Mm. No, I know you full well, but, you know, in the dark, in a dark coat, you know, walking down the street, it could be imposing. And so it is quite scary, I think, for men nowadays to know that that you could be a threat like you would never think of yourself as a threat and you would never think of yourself as an aggressive attacking person that isn't you and I know that's not you however I can from a woman's point of view explain to you that actually yeah if I'm walking along a a main road middle of the night and there's no cars passing by and then I see you up ahead and I you know it's not knowing it's you obviously that would make no sense because if I knew it was you I'd know it was you but you you would be imposing and that is I think that's really scary for women but also for for men to to have that awareness I think it's important that you all have an awareness of what you can do it it kind of I don't know it's a really weird one because it it enhances your your awareness of what you should do as a woman for safety and it reminds you of all these things you know when you're you're brought up being told don't ever wear your hair in a ponytail when you're walking because someone can grab your ponytail. Like, you shouldn't have to be told that, but you grow up knowing that. Always have your phone ready to press call on 999. Always be on the phone to your partner talking. Always take a picture of your taxi registration and the inside of the taxi and tell someone where you're going. Things like that that you shouldn't have to do. But equally, it does also give me that thing of, if I'm walking down the street, I'm not a threat to people without realising, and that must be really difficult for men to to come to terms with that the most innocent, lovely, loving 
family man could be seen as a threat which is just sad Hmm. i think yeah i think there's two sides to to the coin and two sides to the discussion um but but either way that there have been positives that have come out of this i think but it should never have had to happen in order for us to move forward in in our thinking and to get some of these practical changes in place which is still sort of ongoing and some of it's kind of been laughed at you know these kind of emergency line that that women can ring you know it's a lot of stuff's been criticized so Mm. and i really hope as well that people don't go too far and that people still do trust in each other and trust in society because you hear of these wonderful stories where for example woman's being followed and she rushes up to a random stranger and sort of gives him a big hug and says can you just pretend you're my friend because i'm nervous about this and then that person is a protector in a sudden they just step up to the mark and they say yeah absolutely yeah, oh yeah. nice to see you again like let's go walk around the corner you we need as a society to be able to trust in a stranger if we're in danger that that we could go and ask someone for help someone looks particularly friendly and you feel nervous about something else that's going on or you see a police officer or you rush to a mm. police station or something you should i really hope that it doesn't turn society against each other i really hope that the good side of things come out instead Uh, yeah i really don't think it will because i think Mm. you know for example now if i uh, in the past i've seen man and a woman arguing uh, whether it's at night or outside on a residential street or on a night out whatever and you just kind of like historically i just think oh they're just having a domestic whereas now i would probably uh, I'd probably be more inclined, if it felt safe to do so, to go over and just check everything's actually okay and that woman knows that man. I, I'd want to uh, probably intervene a little bit more than, than just assuming that it's uh, a domestic. So so I think it's changed It's changed some behaviours for the better. But yeah, it's, um, it's been an interesting... I suppose it has been a debate in some ways because some people have been quite defensive about it and I can totally understand why. Um, but the most important thing is... Uh, really having a positive legacy from from all of this so that's it and I think that's the thing Sarah's mum's statement which Christ I was brought to tears by because of how powerful it is Um, and Sarah's legacy is going to be you know actually bringing society a bit stronger better together to in trusting the right people and I think that's really important yeah so on that note we'll we'll leave things there so um we'll put the discussion thread up on the facebook group and um, please do get in touch with with your own thoughts on this and uh otherwise we'll see you next week for another episode bye